1: Thank you.
2: Welcome to the Transparency Project Radio on the Inside Lens Network, with programming dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved homicides and suspicious deaths. If you have a question or comment for today's guests, please call in at 646-478-0982. That's 646-478-0982. My name is Denny Griffin, and my co-host is Delilah Jones of ImaginePublicity.com. Hi, Delilah. Hi Denny.
0: Well here we go with another really really informative show. Um I am when you told me that Linda Fell was going to be on, I was just really excited and I know that she has an awful lot to offer to our listeners. So I'm I'm so excited to have her here and um it's going to be good.
2: Uh thank you, Dean. I'm I'm looking forward to this as well. And what brought us here today is that uh, the, the Transparency Project, we have noticed something that is very concerning to us, and that's the number of death cases that are ruled as suicides with little or no investigation by the authorities. And we're not talking here simply about the survivors of the victims who just simply don't want to believe that their loved one would have taken his or her own life. Um They have a a gut feeling, if you will, that they just don't believe uh, this could have happened. And I'm I'm not saying they're wrong, but sometimes they just don't have any evidence to support that conclusion or that feeling. Um, What we're talking about uh, today are the survivors who have actual compelling evidence that there was a, a rush to judgment, if you will, in um, in coming up with a suicide uh, ruling a determination uh, contrary to existing evidence or with little or no investigation, so that that is uh, is where we're at. And as you mentioned, Delilah, joining us today to discuss this issue is Linda cheldalin Fell. Linda is an award winning author, the creator of the Grief Diaries books and Grief Diaries Project Cold Case. She's also CEO of Alley Blue Media. Linda, welcome to the program.
3: Thank you, Danny and Delilah. It's a joy to be here this morning.
2: And before we begin talking about the, the suicide issue, uh, can you take a, a little time, please, Linda, and explain to the audience, if they're not familiar with you, uh, the grief diaries and and how and why you started uh, uh, creating that series, and then specifically about Project Cold Case?
3: Yes, of course. I In 2009, we lost our 15-year-old daughter in a car accident. And much like anyone who experiences a death, uh, you know, it's a profound death, uh, it changes the trajectory of your entire life. And after the fog started to settle a little bit, I really felt called to do something For those who did not have support, and I was blessed with an abundance of support, but I quickly discovered many people are not. We have this perception in our society that, oh, we don't talk about, that's not, you know, death and grief are not polite conversation topics. And so many people are forced to forge their own path, feeling isolated and alone. And because that was not what happened to me, I felt compelled to reach out to them. Long story short, I created a radio show called grief Diaries Radio and then went on to do live filming around the nation and then hosted a national convention. And from there, I was so moved by all the stories that I heard that I thought, what do I do with all those stories? These stories are sacred. These stories are profound and what do I do with them? And, and the idea for a, an anthology series came to mind. And I invited the people that had uh, I attended the convention and immediately received 100 responses. Yes, please, I want to tell my story. Long story short, we've now done over 30 books. I have over 700 writers in 11 countries. And each of them share their story and answer questions And the the books are compiled by type of loss because we speak lost languages. And so loss by homicide is a lost language. Loss by suicide is a lost language. Loss of a child, a parent, et cetera, et cetera. And so from there... I, you know, it moved me into this whole world of, uh, you know, just feeling passionate about giving people a platform for sharing their stories. And the CEO of Project Cold Case, a nonprofit out of Florida, Ryan Backman, contacted me. He had heard what I was doing. By then, we had already published a number of books, and he said, "Would you do a book for our families?" And I said, "Yes, I would." And we published that book. It's been almost two years, and we're actually just starting another edition for his, his families. And they want to share their story. And so that's how I got involved with Project Cold Case. And I learned a tremendous amount about homicide. We'd already done a homicide book. I, with Donna Gore, uh, just a phenomenal powerhouse uh, involved in homicide, and because um, she lost her dad to a homicide, and so I, it, we so we'd done that one book. We'd already done a book on suicide, and then we did Project Cold Case. And you know, uh, it's very very interesting this topic that you are tackling, Denny, is so needed. And good on you because, you know, things happen out there in the investigative field and shortcuts are taken. And, you know, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes intentionally. And a, the outcome is when a death is ruled a suicide and the family then lives the rest of their life with a stigmatized grief. And it's a shame. So I really applaud what you're doing here.
2: Well, thank you very much, Linda. And I, I think it's appropriate uh, to, that I mentioned you You had talked about giving uh, survivors a platform. And uh, I want to thank you for, in our previous discussions, uh, I explained that uh, the Transparency Project is putting together an anthology. Um uh, of, of focusing on survivors of victims of homicide or suspicious death, which would include some of these suicide uh, instances, and uh, you have graciously uh, are considering writing the foreword for that book, and I'm really excited about it. And um, we are, as as you had done with some of uh, your grief diaries and cold case, are are trying to provide a platform for the survivors to tell their stories and get them out there and uh, hopefully bring some attention to the shortcomings of the system uh, and and what some of these survivors go through in the aftermath of these these tragic losses. So I want to thank you for that.
3: You are very welcome, and it's my pleasure to write the foreword. You know, these stories help heal both reader and writer, but more importantly, they provide an incredible collection of information for scholars. And I think that that is fascinating. I think that, you know, that firsthand look at the journeys that these people go through is something that will one day be taught in college courses. And we've got the information right at our fingertips because of the courage, you know, the courage, uh, the courageousness of these writers. It takes a lot of courage to share your story.
2: It it certainly does, and as I'm finding finding out it uh, with with the uh, TTP book, is that it is very difficult. Uh, some of the people who who have stories uh, and are interested, uh, at least initially, on, on writing that story or telling that story. Uh, to find when they actually get into it, it's not that easy, and, and to have to relive uh, the circumstances is not for everybody. Some people just simply uh, have a very difficult time uh, being able to harness that those thoughts and and get them on paper and relive, relive uh, some very tragic times. So uh, it is not an easy thing, and I agree with you. It takes a lot of courage and uh, uh, perseverance, if you will to complete uh, that type of a project.
3: It sure does. I, I, you know, when we finish each book, I remind the writers that they are heroes. You know, because yes. their stories are going to bring comfort to people that they have never met because those people are going to read those stories and say, oh, my gosh, me too. I thought I was the only one. I'm not crazy after all. And that <laughs> is such a gift.
2: Yes, it's it certainly is. Uh, uh, to the topic at hand, uh, the suicide issue. So then, uh, based on your wealth of experience in dealing with these survivors, um, you know, particularly the uh, the homicide and suspicious death uh, survivors, um, do you think I or Delilah and I are over? reacting to this, that there is no problem, or do you tend to agree with us that there is an issue regarding these suicides?
3: Hands down, there is an issue here. It's like the elephant in the room. And here's why. You know, we, I mean, clearly suicide is an alarming trend. Clearly. No one would question that. It's a horrible, horrible uh, loss. And on average, every suicide severely impacts at least 100 people around that person. And, you know, the numbers are are staggering. And so in 2016, the number of of deaths ruled suicide were around 45,000. In comparison, the number of, and this is within the U.S., the number ruled homicide is 17,000. And You know, there's circumstances that happen that lead to a death being classified as a suicide when, in fact, it's a homicide. And there are different mistakes that happen that, you know, come to that conclusion. And the challenge with that is not only is it incorrect, but the family who are then left, you know, handed this conclusion of a suicide, their path is drastically different. And what I mean by that is that every loss has its own dynamics, okay? Uh, The the journeys are some commonalities between the different kinds of losses. That's true. Uh, But, you know, between homicide and suicide, the dynamics around that grief journey are very different. And in suicide, the person who's the victim is also the perpetrator. And it leaves the family with more questions than answers. With homicide, whether it's a cold case or not, someone died at the hands of someone else. And so that leaves a whole other dynamics, you know, for that healing process. And so it's really, really important to do due diligence in that investigation to clearly delineate whether one is a suicide or not. So yeah, we've got a problem.
2: And I'll uh, I don't not going to discuss any specific cases today, but generally speaking, uh, I want to see if you have experienced this uh, these same scenarios in in your dealings with these survivors. Uh, there seems to be a number of possibilities for why these things happen. For for example, there can be, I suppose, laziness uh, on, on the part of the investigators or the investigating agency, the responding agency. Uh, there could be uh, incompetence. Maybe, maybe some officers aren't as up to speed as they should be about how to conduct an investigation and what to look for and so on. Um, and then there, we also went into actual allegations of intentional cover-ups. Um, and, and I'll just cite cases where you have uh, a, a so-called good old boys network uh, in certain states or allegedly in certain states. And that when there's a, a death that uh, if, if determined to be a homicide could be an inconvenience, uh, or p- possibly implicate part of this good old boy network. Um, the, the suicide is uh, is determined almost immediately, and there's no real investigation. Um, I have other cases where I've heard that a the person of inter or who would be a person of interest or suspect is the reporting person. They call in. Uh, to the 911 center about a dead body. And they say in their call that there's a suicide and the call is then dispatched as a suicide. And when the officer arrives on the scene, he or she believes they are responding to a suicide. And that kind of sets the tone for the investigation or lack of investigation in some cases. Um, And as you say, it could be a stage scene. Uh, You know, the the person who may have committed a homicide is, in fact, the one reporting it and and starting the groundwork to have it uh, uh, go out as a suicide. So have you run into these scenarios with the people that you talk to?
3: Yeah, definitely. You know, there is, from the very outset, when a call comes in, that there is a a suicide, then, you know, people psychologically as they respond to that call are assuming the death to be a suicide, right? I mean, that's just human nature. If a call comes in as a suicide, um, we're thinking, okay, you know, we're responding to the suicide. And so they tend to treat it as a suicide. And what happens there then is due diligence. uh, There's, there's shortcuts okay, and it's not laziness, it is just that, that human thinking, you know, okay, but psychologically this is a suicide, and so maybe photographs weren't taken sufficiently, maybe certain tests were not conducted that should have been conducted, um, you know, the, the investigation was not complete, because truth be told, no matter what that call comes in, it's almost like someone is innocent until proven guilty, so let's apply that analogy to this. When the call comes in, it should be considered homicide until proven otherwise. And so you can't take the, the word of the caller, okay? And so that is one of the, the most important things is you've got to have that mindset that this could be anything. And so years past, I was a firefighter EMT, And a call would come in, and it might be X, Y, Z, and you arrive on scene only to find out it's really A, B, C. And so you've got to keep that open mind that just because someone reports a suicide doesn't mean it's a suicide. And you've got to not be, you know, psychologically assuming that's what you're responding to. So that would be the very first thing. So I don't think it's laziness. I think it's just that psychological mindset that is human nature and you know law enforcement has to be careful with that
0: I think that's probably one of the most important points that Linda brought up because if and, and maybe Denny maybe you can answer this question with your law enforcement background is it a matter of protocol or should it be a matter of protocol that all cases like this that are called in with a a death, like, you know, a violent death especially, um, should be treated as a homicide before a ruling of suicide is given. How how do departments handle that?
2: That it should be the protocol. Of course, obviously, each department can set their own standards and protocols, but it should be. It's, it's, it should be the common practice is that when you respond to a death scene, you should treat it, as Linda said, you should treat it as a homicide until proven otherwise. When other things are ruled out, then if it's a, an accident or a suicide, a legitimate suicide or whatever, but you should go in and enter this and conduct your investigation with the idea that it is a homicide. As you can rule it that out, that's that's fine. But you should not go in with a, a predetermined judgment that it's a that's a suicide based on the nature of the call or the information from the reporting person. And because we deal with people, uh, survivors from all around the country, we we get a a lot of variations of, uh, you know, what happens in these cases. And and a lot of these people, uh, survivors are able to, through FOIA or other means come up with, with copies of the 911 transactions between the caller the reporting person um, and, and how the call is handled and dispatched and there are some of the recordings or transcripts that I've had access to that lead me to believe the 911 uh, operators, dispatchers in certain cases may may have, should have had a little bit more training. In other words, when they are screening the call, uh, and, and the, the reporting person says, "Hey, uh, my girlfriend just killed herself," uh, they kind of accept that and don't really interview and question the reporting person to get some more information and get something on the record. They say, "Oh, have uh, you tried CPR?" Blah blah blah. How did she do it? She, you know, she shot herself. Uh, and, and they will dispatch the call and, and kind of take the reporting person's word for that uh, without doing any additional interviewing or, or fact-finding. And then the call goes out, as, as we were discussing, as a, uh, a suicide. And so the officer responding is, is says the uh, – you know, is anticipating and and assumes he or she is going to a suicide. So I I think in some cases there could be a little uh, better training for the 911 people. And then also, as we were saying, the officers should walk into this regardless of how it's dispatched. Until they can determine it by reviewing the circumstances and the evidence and doing any interviews and so on, they should still... Uh, go in with the idea that it's a homicide.
3: Yeah, and and why that is so critical is responding to a death as a homicide will protect all the evidence of the scene. Because if you treat it as a suicide, when in fact it's a homicide, you've contaminated that entire scene. And Everything, the protocol, nothing was handled as a homicide case. And it's too late. You can't go back and undo contamination. You can't say, oh, wow, I think this might be a homicide. And then go back to the, you know, everything's contaminated from that point forward. And that's pretty darn challenging to deal with. So if it's treated as a homicide until proven otherwise, it will protect valuable evidence and protect from contamination.
2: That's an excellent point, Linda. Like you say, you can't undo it. If, uh, no. if that scene, no. that evidence is contaminated, that's contaminated and there's, there's no getting it yeah. back.
3: I, I want to share a case. Uh, this was, oh gosh, well some time ago. And I responded to the scene of a DOA And uh, it was uh, someone who was found dead and it was a teenage girl and she was in her bedroom and I was the first one on scene and the family was distraught and immediately I could not identify a cause of death, but she was, you know, she, she had, uh, her blood was already pooling. There was, I mean, she's obviously been deceased for a number of hours. So there was nothing that I could have done to restore life to her you know CPR and such and instantly I realized that uh, because there was no obvious mode or cause of death that I could not allow anyone to touch her or come even into the bedroom and the family was distraught the mom was screaming at me to do something do something but intuitively I knew that this could have been a crime scene and so I, uh, you know, by attempting to, you know, do any, there was no heroic measures to be done. She had been deceased for a number of hours. The mom didn't know that, but I, you know, it was clear to me. And so what was really challenging about that is keeping people out of the room when you've got distraught family. And of course, you know, I knew that, uh, you know, law enforcement, support officers, and you know firefighters were on their way. I I just happened to be first on scene and uh, needed to keep everyone out of that room. And that was really really challenging, you know. I, I, and I later found out how she died, and it was not. It was a natural cause of death. Um, it was not suicide. It was not homicide. But I I protected that scene as homicide until proven otherwise, because it, it's just. Uh, you know, let this be a, a good example for anyone. You can't go back and and you know vacuum the carpet and leave you know evidence should it have been a homicide. Do you know what I mean? So it's it's really critical. So and one of the other things I think I you know you kind of alluded to this and I want to go back to it in uh, more detail because this is it's just something that our generation is dealing with and it's called the CSI effect. And what that means is, you know, many, many people watch CSI and other law shows, okay? I'm not one of them. Um, I have my favorites, but I know that CSI is hugely popular. And what happens there is that it kind of creates a whole generation of armchair detectives, right? These are people who are learning things by watching the show, and they learn. They use that to their advantage. They want to commit a crime, and them If they want to do, you know, kill someone, they want to murder someone, but want to make it look like a suicide. It's not that hard to figure out how to do that because of shows like CSI. And so that's something else that law enforcement has to take in consideration: is that you know things like this can really present a huge challenge and how are they training for this? You know, that's something that is, um, we just, we have to, we have to open that dialogue.
2: Yes.
0: Well, don't you find a lot of times too, Linda, that, that in a lot of cases, families, they want answers. They want to know who to blame, what to blame, um, In order order to move forward with the grieving process that they've been thrust into, and a lot of times these investigations take a lot of time. And obviously, when you're in the situation of a grieving family, your patience is is gone. Um, And and in order to give a quicker answer, maybe, you know, maybe suicide sounds like the, the way to go, but it's not the, it's not the right thing to do but in order to appease the family i think a lot of times it's done
3: um it could be it could be i i think that again and going back to the csi effect when you've got a criminal who uh you know has been dissecting these shows learning how to set something up uh, to look like a suicide when in fact it's not um it you know it it's not a hard throw for, again, you know, these law enforcement are getting the call as a suicide. So psychologically, they're, you know, thinking this is a suicide. And the, you know, seeing all the details of the same point to suicide, you know, and I think to, you know, tell that to the family, thinking that they can then begin to have closure You know, that is not good thinking because there is no closure. There is no such thing in closure with a traumatic loss. And when I say traumatic, what I mean by that is a sudden unexpected death. And so traumatic loss, that is not something where you find closure for the rest of your life. And in that thinking that if we rule it a suicide, the family can begin the healing process sooner, couldn't be further from the truth.
0: Totally agree with that. Totally. And, um, you know, unfortunately uh, we have so many families out there grieving and not knowing which direction to grieve. And I think this becomes, this becomes another epidemic all in itself. They, they just don't know how to handle number one, the death, and then the manner of death and not having answers. And and again, I go back to the fact that we're living in an instant society and and the CSI effect feeds right into that where in an hour you have cases solved. Real life isn't that way, and investigations take – Time. It's not all cut and dried. It takes time for evidence to be analyzed and it takes time to get reports back. And, you know, hopefully, um, I don't know that that process can be speeded up. But, of course, again, you've got grieving families out there that want answers and, and they want them now.
3: Right right very very true and i do think that that puts pressures on law enforcement and the detectives you know and the the medical examiner and such but also i think that they're well versed in that you know these things couldn't be rushed they shouldn't be rushed i mean things like um you know there's dna to process there's different you know there's fibers at the scene or did the mud underneath the fingernails actually come from the location where the body was found. And things like, you know, even just the suicide note, many law enforcement, they take that suicide note as a given. But was it analyzed? Was it actually written by the deceased? And they don't know that until they give it to an expert who can compare that handwriting with the actual handwriting of the deceased. But that step is overlooked I think because they say oh here's a note so, so we've got a note it's clear this is suicide and it's details like that that take time and resources you know it costs money to have the handwriting analyzed and so it's a it becomes a real um, you know almost a, a snow globe that shaken effect where all these little pieces are, are trying to sort themselves out and at the um you know one end of it you've got administration you know trying to save costs and that kind of thing it's 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 a huge challenge
2: uh, well i and a lot of this goes back too to the to the timing of the the length of time for the investigation is when you have the police, the investigators doing the right job and treating. The, the death as a homicide and and doing the testing and collecting the evidence and so forth uh you know until they can rule out a homicide um right. as opposed as opposed to the you know seeing the suicide note or, or going in with the uh and accepting that as face value and not, as Linda said having that the, the, that note analyzed make sure you know who wrote it and possibly when it was, you know, all these types of things is part of an actual investigation as opposed to the assuming business of coming in with your, you know, basically with your mind closed to to anything but a suicide. Um, it, so we agree that there's a problem. Now, my question from there, I guess, is what can be done about it? It seems like obviously training For everybody involved, from the 911 dispatcher to the, uh, the, you know, police responders, the police officers, uh, you know, and EMTs and so forth, anybody who might be at that scene, um, you know, should be trained and, again, go in, hopefully, with the attitude that that they're going to do an investigation to determine what happened. Um, For the family members, the survivors at what point should they become concerned or alarmed that perhaps that case is not being investigated the way it should? Um, obviously everybody's in grief. The survivors are in grief at that point. They're accepting this, as Linda said, a traumatic loss. Um, and it takes a little time, I think, in a lot of the cases to kind of get your feet back on the ground and, 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 realize what's going on what's happening so if if a if a survivor sees what i guess you'd call a red flag for example if uh before the body's even removed there's a suicide determination uh you know with little or no investigation at that point when that when they realize that what should they do should they um uh, call the chief of police or the sheriff should they uh what would be the appropriate thing for the survivor to do when they think and have it, probable cause if you will to believe there's an issue
3: that's an excellent question denny and really they need their voices to be heard and what i mean by that is first off you know did law enforcement conduct victimology Okay, and who was the victim? What was going on in his and her life at the time of the event? And I'm going to use a a recent case locally to highlight this point. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, a young 20-something-year-old young man fell from a high-story building, and it was ruled a suicide, the family is crying foul. And what's really interesting about this is that the family is not having any success. There's, I, it's, it's like an open and closed case. And it's very interesting to me. I, I met with a close friend of the deceased two weeks ago. And the fact that the family felt that this is clearly not suicide, you know, it's clearly homicide, but law enforcement ruled it a suicide. Well, going back to your point, you know, what can they do? Their voices need to be heard and asked whether the victimology was completed in the case, because the victimology is a collection and assessment of information about the victim and his or her her lifestyle, okay? And here's one of the ways that kind of help us make a decision which way we're going toward homicide or suicide. Oftentimes people who die by suicide have had suicidal ideation. They've expressed it. They've been in counseling for it. They are in treatment for perhaps depression, depression, Uh, PTSD, you know, a host of different kinds of life stressors and challenges and such. And they've expressed a desire before to die by suicide, maybe have even attempted it before, okay? And then you have the person who doesn't have a history of that. They, you know, they don't have any... any indication that anything is going wrong, that kind of thing. And those are the ones where the family's going, wait, what? What happened here? This, this can't be homicide They or, 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 correction, suicide. And so, you know, you want to go back and make sure that that due diligence was done about the victim. And, you know, was there, there, all the information pertaining to his or her lifestyle collected and assessed properly, and, I, and so, you know, that's really, really important. And so, really, it feels a bit like the family has no say, but they can use their voice. And so, Denny, maybe you can highlight as law enforcement, maybe you can highlight listeners or, you know, identify for listeners um, what can be done within what right does that family have to request Another investigator.
2: Yeah, uh, a major problem that you encounter frequently is political correctness. Uh, by that I mean, mm. if if you think if the survivor thinks the investigation is not being has not been properly conducted or is not being properly conducted, and they would like, say, a different agency. Uh, if it's a county sheriff, they want to maybe a state police, or if it's a town PD, they don't want the sheriff and so on, to to come in and, and take another look or to take over the investigation. Um, obviously, the, the state agency would have jurisdiction anywhere in the state, so a jurisdiction would not be the issue. Uh, but these agencies will not come in like Big Brother until the initial agency, the handling agency, that they're going to take over the investigation. They have to, They want for political correctness to be invited in. So unless the survivor can prove some type of malfeasance or a compelling case, uh, they're not going to get to, in most cases, they're not going to get very far with asking uh, another agency to come in. Um, now, if it's within the department, they just want a different detective uh, or a different investigator you can make your case to the to the supervisor, depending on the size of the department, if they have a homicide division or if, if uh, maybe small departments wouldn't have specific divisions where the, all the officers kind of do everything. Uh, but whatever agency you're dealing with, you can try to get the, the supervisor of that the unit or division or, or the sheriff or the chief of police, whatever it is, And make your case. You could uh, try that. And I would strongly recommend anybody doing that to keep records of what you've done, who you talk to, when you talk to them, what you said, what they said to you, and that type of thing. Because if you don't get satisfaction and you have to go to another level, you really should have some type of documentation, a timeline of why you were suspicious, what you did about it, and you know, the progress you made, if any. Uh, So I I strongly suggest that. Um, And then it would depend on who you're dealing with. And, uh, you know, whether they do anything or not, they might say, hey, you know, kind of leave us alone. Not every police agency uh, has the uh, bedside manner, if you will, in cases deal with irate or grieving survivors and you sometimes have uh, friction between the, the, family and the police agency that obviously is, is, is going to hinder where you're at. And I, uh, I recommend to people if, if they're at a, uh, loggerheads with the, with the agency that they have to deal with because they can't, you know, bypass them. Um, uh, You might want to get an intermediary. There are groups such as Citizens Against Homicide, for example, and similar groups that will advocate for the the family. And they can sometimes go in and get cooperation or relationship with the police agency that the family members, you know, because of uh, dissatisfaction with with the investigation, uh, don't have so that's another possibility. If you have to if you have to stay with that agency, and and you want somebody to maybe come in and, and act as your advocate and and, and try to get information, uh, which brings me to another pet peeve of mine, is trying to get police records. If if you want to know what happened to the investigation, you want to see reports of who was interviewed or what evidence was obtained and and that type of thing. Um, There's an open case exemption that the police agency have to FOIA requests. It might be FOIA or different states have different uh, freedom of information type programs. But whatever it is, the police agency can refuse citing the open case exemption to provide that information to let the family be able to see what actually has transpired. Uh, and believe me, there are probably 95% of the the, uh, the exemptions when they're when the police agency refuses to release information are justified. They don't want to tip their hand. They don't want to give too much information to a suspect, and so forth. But that that same ability c- can also be used to conceal incompetence, botched investigations. That type of thing. Uh, that's one of the reasons we're we're trying to do with the transparency project is uh, is get so that information cannot be withheld simply because the case is open, but that it's got to be active. In other words, it can't be on the shelf somewhere for ten years. Uh, they the agency still has to be conducting interviews and pursuing leads and so forth. So um and there was a recently passed legislation in the state of Illinois called Molly's Law uh based on the the death of a young lady named Molly Young and what happened with this legislation it requires that the police agency that is has been asked to release the information has to prove that the case is not only open but active so that's a key thing If the case is not active, the attorney general can order the information release. So it it helps uh, well, transparency. Uh, And it it also accomplishes a couple of other things because families can sometimes use as a tool our civil actions as a wrongful death lawsuit. And in most states, the statute of limitations for civil actions have been two years. The Illinois Molly's Law uh, for certain types of death cases that has been extended to five years. So it gives the family a little more time to get their head on straight and and try to figure out what's going on uh, and and uh, to file their claim. And then they can get witnesses and persons of interest and so forth into a uh Setting for depositions, sworn depositions, and possibly obtain information that the police didn't or couldn't get. So, there. Uh, anyway, the Mali's law is a great thing, and we're encouraging our, our uh, TTP members who are survivors going through this type of thing to go to their local legislatures and and try to find out if they can get a sponsor. You know to, to to enact something in their state that is patterned after Molly's law. And, in fact, in New York, uh, we have something going here that's going to be introduced hopefully in the next session for 2019. And we have, we believe, a sponsor in the Assembly, and uh, we're pursuing getting a sponsor now in the Senate. You have to have both uh, both chambers. But uh, we are pursuing getting a Molly's law type of legislation passed in New York. So there are various things that can be done, I think, but it's very frustrating. It's very time consuming and dealing with the legislature. I mean, there's all kinds of things where you you sometimes want to just throw your hands up in the air and, and, but uh, it, it just requires a lot of perseverance. Yep. Sure does. And, I I think it has to be done. And that, that's you know it's unfortunate to be in that position, but we we have to get the word out. We have to have awareness. I believe we have to have training. We have to have education of of uh, of not only the the law enforcement uh, agencies, but also the survivors. They have to be aware, and uh, I think have somewhere to go to. You know, for assistance if they need it, and and uh, and as you said, Linda, their voices have to be heard.
3: Yeah, they have to advocate for themselves, because or for the deceased loved one, because no one else will. You know, it's law enforcement's job to you know conduct an investigation, and we both know that suicide investigations are much shorter than homicide. And so it costs the department less, both in time and resources, and yet it's not accurate. So, you know, the families need advocates. They need people to help them navigate what to do when a case is designated as a suicide, and it clearly is not.
2: Um, I just, uh, Delilah, do we have a caller? I was just wondering if Linda's up to taking a call. We may have somebody trying to get yes. in.
0: Hi, area code 678. Do you have a question?
4: Good morning, Delilah, Danny, and Linda. This is Phyllis Cook. And I don't want to take much of your time on this show, but I'm saying what, what I've listened to is awesome. You guys, all of you are awesome, and it's a lot of good, credible information. And it's ironic that Linda's doing this today and you're doing this show because tomorrow marks 51 years that my brother was murdered. And, you know, I have gotten positive information now that my brother was murdered. I know who done it, where it was done and how it was done, and I also know of the, you know, the massive cover-up with the police that has taken place. Now, I got off into a, I guess you could say, a drama session with a lot of negativity on my brother's case and my dad's, but I have refocused. I am back positive. And, you know, the cover-up with the police, it does take place, and it's so sad. And, Denny, you know, in the foyer information that I received and I also sent with you, Excuse me. It was proven, you you know, this uh, police officer, I I won't name a name, but the police captain, he mentioned the um, deck shoes. And, uh, you know, it was ironic that he mentioned the deck shoes in the foyer information because Robert Wells with BoVamp, he had a beta testing, and they they took my brothers as the first one and my dad's as the tenth I was sort of skeptical of the beta testing and intuitive and stuff, but needless to say, when I analyzed and I went back over and I picked out certain parts, I now have a private investigator who is helping on the case, and, you know, it's been proven my brother was murdered and at a boat dock. He was severely beaten, and not to go in stuff that would jeopardize the case, but, you know, it. There are certain things that I've picked out. He described the people. There have been people that have come forward. So it's beyond a shadow of a doubt and positive that, yes, my brother did not commit suicide. My brother was murdered. So I I beg everyone, please, never give up. It may take you your lifetime. It's taken me 51 years as of tomorrow, but I now know the truth.
2: Well, bless you oh. for
3: calling in, and I'm um, terribly, terribly sorry for the loss of your brother. And, you know, 51 years, many people think, oh, that's a long time. But you know what? Love doesn't have an expiration date. You're and right, so we and- carry that grief in our heart for until it's our turn to die. And so I, I want to refer you to Project Cold Case down in Florida. They help people with cold cases no matter how many years it's been.
4: And oh, Linda, it, uh, I was going to bus- say, Ryan and you and Ryan and all of y'all, y'all were the first ones. Ryan was the first one to add my dad's uh, case to the Project Cold Case. He was the first one that I dealt with, and he added my dad's story to it. Oh, and then good. I also did good the good. one. And I mean, there. I don't think there's anything better than Ryan Beckman and, and Project Case. I mean, they are a top-notch group, and I love them. They very. are.
3: I I agree absolutely. I'm glad that you hooked up with them.
4: And then and Delilah, and they are my second. I mean, I just love all of you guys. You're awesome. You're true to what you stand for. And yes, but I'm just you know, like say, whenever the police. You know, now I know that there was so much police cover-up, and I know there was a lot of corruption going on during the time and then back in that era of time. But, you know, also my dad was just murdered in 2003 because he finally exposed the killer and who it was and told the truth on that. He was murdered four months later, a lieutenant within the oh, police. Oh, my And they goodness. covered up all of his stuff. They have covered up everything on his, the car, and it took me what 16 years i just found out about 4 months ago from another private investigator what happened to my dad's car who who got my dad's car why my dad was murdered my dad no there was no reason i i saw no crime tape no blood no indication my dad was murdered in his drive well now i know my dad was not murdered in his drive and the police have covered wow. that up also and it's positive. It's not just me saying this or me with a, you know, my mind wanting to say that this. No, this has been proven. With witnesses have come forward.
3: So did they? Did they prove in both cases that, or did they uh, rule suicide in both cases? They ruled.
4: They ruled suicide on both cases. Uh, delilah but people have come forward and like i say i have to really you know watch what i say do but yeah there has been witnesses that come forward that have described incidents that's taken place positive stuff that i myself know that only someone that had been there or known that could have described that it's not something that i have said in my stories which i pretty much reiterated everything that's happened but these are things that you know, in the back of your mind, knowing your family and knowing the circumstances and things that you have not told that people have told you know are true. So, yes, my father and my brother both were definitely murdered. And they do tie oh, into gosh. the Buford-Pussard walking Tall case, my old brother's does. Um, Denny, I think I discussed some of that with you that you can later discuss with Delilah and Linda to let them know how I know this, as well as my dad's case, you know, there was no no officer ever came to the house. There was no news media. There was no article whatsoever. There was no investigation. He was not embalmed from time he left Mississippi and autopsy done until he was taken a six-hour drive to Florida to be all of that stuff done. I was never allowed to see his body. And this is all just 2003. So, yeah, it's positive that my father and my brother were both murdered. And my dad's case, it ties into the... Uh, vincent sherry case my dad knew the real killer my dad knows who the real killer is and i know i can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt who killed the sherry's murders let me retract the shadow of a doubt but let me say that i personal feelings think i have enough information and hopefully one day someone will take the case enough to open it and see that you know what i'm saying is true
2: fellas, uh, if uh, we were talking about perseverance, then you certainly are an example of of, uh, of perseverance. And we're we're running out of time, so I'm going to have to uh, to move Good, on. Andy. But thank you very thank you very much for your call, Phyllis.
4: Thank all of you, honey. Thanks.
2: Bye, bye, Phyllis. And do we have another caller? We
0: do. Area code 618, do you have a question?
1: Yes. uh, I would like to know uh, what you can do when a case is undetermined and it's been left open, but there's no uh, active, any activity on it for five years.
2: You want to take that, Linda?
3: Well, I'm just thinking that, you know, that, that, to my mind, now, I realize that a cold case is um, the time frame is determined you know individually within each uh, you know precinct, but that would be a cold case, so then I guess my question to you is who's assigned to that cold case, and how are they keeping it active? What is happening every month or every week? Uh, you know, what are the periodic things that bring them back to continuing to make progress on this? Are you in, Cation, with the assigned detective?
1: I have asked who is assigned to it, and they said they don't have anybody. I, I so put it no in writing, and they responded it. in writing. Well, they didn't say no one is assigned to it. They said we've completed our investigation in 2012 and turned uh, turned our investigation over to the uh, prosecutor and there's no one assigned to it the guy that was assigned to it is uh, took a demotion the trooper so where uh, does
0: it where, where does the evidence in the case stand right now who has jurisdiction over all of that is it with the prosecutor's office is it still with the police department
1: he recused it, the prosecutor recused himself and they gave it to a special prosecutor and when i wrote a letter to the special prosecutor. He said he couldn't meet with us to entertain any new evidence because it might jeopardize any future trial to contact the investigators. Well, there's no investigator assigned to it, so I, I had to go through my legislature to try to get somebody to meet with us and entertain 27 pieces of new evidence that we've uh, gathered out of the files ourselves. And uh, we, we define them as new evidence based on the fact that there's no reports written on this evidence. So uh, we are at a, like a standstill because we can't get a, a person assigned to investigate this case to sit and listen to and discuss the issues.
0: Denny, I've extended the time um, of our recording, so whatever we can talk through to help this gentleman...
2: We've, we've okay. got the time to do it. Okay, excellent. Uh, Linda, go ahead.
3: Well, I was going to ask you, Denny. Actually, what happens in situations such as this? This is somewhat unusual.
2: It's extremely and uh, uh, Larry. I believe I'm, I'm talking to Larry Young. Is that right, Larry? Yes. And and the Maui's law that I had mentioned earlier is based on this case. So. Uh, it's an extremely frustrating thing. And to be honest with you, I don't understand what Larry is going through trying to get someone to sit down or to meet and discuss the evidence and kind of figure out where this thing stands and why it isn't moving forward. And it it seems to me, Larry, and you you can correct me if I'm wrong, that it's a a lot of buck passing going on that, uh, You know, this one doesn't know it. This one refers you to somebody else, and they can't talk because it could jeopardize a non-invest a non-investigation. Apparently, there is no investigation, and they're worried about jeopardizing it. So I I don't know, and I I don't know if it has to maybe go to the governor's office. I just don't really know what to uh, what to say. I know that you are very diligent in pursuing every possible angle, but uh, there's got to be something left. And you know, I'm I'm wondering if a good investigative reporter uh perhaps that could uh you know like a 2020 uh, thing or one of these tv uh uh programs that deals in in this type of thing there's got to be a way to pressure i would i would think there's got to be a way to pressure someone in in the government there to do something someone to make a decision or to force the issue Uh, rather than just keep going like this with the the buck passing from one to the other and everybody denies that it's their responsibility?
1: Well, uh, I I guess I didn't... I was on the Police and Fire Merit Board in my hometown when this happened. And I administered testing to potential candidates and uh, and screened them and all that. And I had no idea that uh, citizens... Uh, law-abiding citizens in, in, a, in a state could have to deal with uh, a situation like this. I thought I had an idealistic view, I guess, of how they handle cases. I didn't have any idea that uh, a case could be treated this way. But I'm finding out from hundreds of people that this cases are treated this way. And, and a lot of them are undetermined, ruled undetermined. A lot of them are ruled, uh, you know, and this is – there's no – no problem finding the suspect. He admits he was there. He admits he was at the scene. Everything's, you know, it's cut and dried normally, but for some reason, they don't want to uh, 19 lab tests show a homicide. And for some reason they don't want to do anything about it. I don't understand that.
0: What happens with an untermined case? I mean, does it just sit there forever? What, I mean, well, surely her- there's got to be some way to tie this up.
1: They had an inquest and it was ruled undetermined in the inquest. So the coroner put on his uh, on the death certificate undetermined, and as of two years ago is still undetermined. I haven't got a current death certificate. It happened six years ago, over six. But the uh, I guess there's no uh, mechanism in place to push a undetermined case. They can leave it dormant for however long they want to. And they admit that they're waiting on further evidence to surface. And I've said, you know, you don't actively seek that evidence. You wait for it to surface on its own, for it to come to you. So I brought it to them in August. And the question is, uh, why are they not actively seeking the evidence? Why are they not actively? uh, We've got uh, witnesses that they won't even interview
2: uh, Linda, you know, do so, you think? You know, I, I'm sorry, I was just going to ask Linda if she thought maybe Project Cold Case would be a good contact for you.
3: I would definitely start with Ryan. And, and he's very knowledgeable.
1: Your, uh, I watched your interview of him uh, on this morning, early this morning, actually. It was a good interview. Oh, uh, oh no, I'm not you. sure. You I'm not sure Molly's case isn't on his site uh, because I've uh, talked to a lot of different sites and I've got probably 30 that are dealing with these kind of issues and, you know, with uh, unsolved cases. And uh, I'm not sure if I'm on his site yet or not, you know. Well,
3: it's more than just being put on the site. I would actually would call him. And, you know, the the phone
1: number. We have 26,000 members on our site that believe there's a homicide that are active and uh it's been that way since it happened you know it's gradually built up to 26,000 on on fa- justice for money on facebook so uh it isn't just a grieving father or a grieving family that's uh upset about this you know it's uh actually injustice to one isn't justice at all and it can happen to you if you don't stand right. up for the people that, yeah and i didn't ever think it happened to me but it did and I can't say that I would have been as strong a supporter as these people on my page if, if it wouldn't have happened to me. I can't really say, that, you know, I, I was living in a bubble, I guess. I didn't think that the cases would be left un, unresolved and unattended, uh, but they are right. all over the country. Anyway, I don't know the... Answer to, I appreciate all what you guys are doing. Uh, uh, we're we're working on behind the scenes. I'm working on some projects that I can't divulge right now, but uh, it's going to, bring, it's, it deals with databases and we're going to try to bring this to light. There's no database yeah, well, on best how of many. Luck,
3: uh, best of luck There's no J, database. Larry, but also yeah. do try to connect with, uh, with Ryan personally okay. and okay. present this to him. And, um, you okay. know, he might have some, you know, thinking outside the box options to consider. And he might even be willing to, to you know, collaborate with you. So, All right, I will. I uh, do, do reach out to him. He's a wealth of information. And on top of that, he's a lovely guy.
1: Yeah, I I really enjoyed listening to your program on that. And that was, uh, oh, thank
3: you
1: know, you. Uh, real enlightening. I thought he was very insinc- thank you. sincere, and you too. Oh, he is. He's.
3: Oh, thank you. Uh, he. He. Ryan is as genuine as they come, and he works closely with law enforcement because it took him a long time to, you know, create that level of trust that gained him a little bit of insight into how things work behind the blue line, and I. Uh, and so. You know, definitely that would be my first thought is to contact him, have an honest conversation, and see if the two of you can't, uh, you know, can't take this and get going with it because there's others who are in your shoes.
1: All right. Uh, that's an issue, I, uh, you know, no one discusses when a case is left undetermined, and I wanted to get that out there, uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Molly's Molly's Law helped me get the get the facts of the case, and I've got 600 crime scene photos and uh, and 2,000 pages of documents, 30 CDs, and 10 hours of video-recorded interviews. Uh, I got that through pushing for Molly's Law, and uh, I couldn't get wrongful death, but I got that off the law because I know what the truth is now. Well, best of luck to Just you. Just giving someone
3: to listen. And All right. Thank you. Yeah, best of luck to you, and do check with Ryan,
1: and keep us posted. All right. Okay. All right. Thanks, Jenny.
2: Thanks, Delilah. You're All welcome, time. Larry. Thanks for the call. You're welcome. Um, and right. uh, um, unfortunately, we're we're way over time. We're going to have to wrap it up. Uh, Linda, this was, uh, I, I think, uh, an excellent program. I want to thank you so much for sharing your expertise, and, uh, you know, maybe this warrants a follow-up program at some point because I I, I think we, I don't think we certainly did not address everything um, today, but, uh, but I think it was an excellent show, and I hope you'll come back in the future to talk about this or maybe some other issues.
3: Anytime, Denny. I, I think, you know, one of the things that we can do is use our voice and help shed light on things people when they find themselves you know facing this they often feel alone but they aren't there's people like us you delilah myself who are happy to help and we desire to help because when we help others it helps our own heart to heal and and so absolutely i'm happy to come on anytime
2: Okay. There's well, no thanks again.
3: Stuff that we can talk about here. <laughs> <laughs> there
2: certainly isn't, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, thanks again, Linda, so much, and Delilah, thanks for extending our time a little bit to uh, to get Larry's call in, and to our listeners, uh, thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time, stay safe.